Now we're back in our series Heart and House in 1 and 2 Samuel today and uh, we've reached what really is quite a horrible and devastating moment in the text. It's as shocking, but as shocking as it is, it's a moment that is sadly unsurprising. A toxic culture has developed in Israel that we've been tracking and uh, it's become likely that something like this was going to happen. Now I don't need to I don't need to be um, apologetic for what the text says because it's here for a reason and it's profitable for teaching but I do want to say that this could be triggering for people. This could be a very difficult thing for some people to hear. And I want you to know that we, we care. And we're not, we're, we want to be sensitive. And we don't just want to say things lightly. Because this is not a light subject. And if you are someone who maybe will be tr- triggered today uh, by things of uh, a violent nature, but also of a sexual nature, of sexual abuse, then please feel no shame in going out, if you have to go out, um, finding someone to pray with. Um, We've got a prayer team who are gonna be ready to pray afterwards, um, if that's something that you would like. Uh, But we can also arrange for people to speak with you as well. Okay, so come and grab someone that you know at the end, who's maybe a leader here in the church, someone that you trust, and, um, and we can make sure that you can find the right people to speak to. All eyes in Israel were on a man named Amnon, David's eldest son. They would be asking, is this the one that God is raising up to build a house for God's name, to establish the throne of his kingdom forever? That's what Nathan's prophecy said about the sons of David. Someone, a son of David, would come and establish this kind of everlasting kingdom. But This actually is the desperately sad story of how a future king certainly doesn't fit that bill and instead uses his privilege and power to rape an innocent woman, Tamar. And sadly, the kind of culture that made it possible at the time is not consigned to history. Around 1 in 35 women in the UK were subjected to sexual violence last year. The World Health Organization estimates that around one in three women worldwide will be subjected to sexual violence in their lifetime. And like the five out of six reported cases in the UK last year, they were perpetrated by someone that they knew. And the same is true for Tamar. And it's not only women, but also men who are subject to sexual violence. We're going to look at each of the characters in the story, and we're going to work through how can we, as people, be culture changers, be people who don't add to this toxic culture that makes it possible, but actually can be part of a changing culture, one that is going to stop this kind of thing from happening. 
Now, Alice is going to come and read our text for us this afternoon. And uh, so while she, while she comes up, can you please, oh, that was fast, <laughs> turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Yes, 2 Samuel 13. Uh, verses 1 to 22. Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now Amnon had an advisor named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, Why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight, so that I may watch her and then eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight, so that I may eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar, Go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went to the house of her brother Amnon, who was lying down. She took some dough, kneaded it, and made the bread into sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread, but he refused to eat. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and he said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you have already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. She put her hands on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet, Fanel, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. When King David heard of this, he was furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. Thank you, Alice. Sin is not easy to siphon off in one surgical cut. It's like an aggressive cancer that metastasizes and affects the rest of the body. Our sin 
has consequences for our families, our friends, our churches, and the cultures that we shape around us. What we do today influences our children tomorrow. So for that reason, we're going to begin with the character David in the story. Amnon is fully responsible for his actions with Tamar. But David's legacy here is at play. We are supposed to see parallels between how Bathsheba is abused by David in chapter 11 and how Tamar is exploited by Amnon in chapter 13. We're supposed to see the destruction of David's polygamy, his failings as a father, and his wandering off from God to set the most terrible of examples. Despite all the privilege and all the access to the things that you might need for children to thrive, David deprives them of the most important thing, love. A loving home with parents in a monogamous and stable relationship. We will see that God can redeem broken homes and does. So if that's you, if that's you, I want you to know that at this point, God redeems those situations, especially and often through strong women of God who carry more than they should have to. But it is against the odds that that success comes. We're all supposed to see in this text the pattern of David's sin against Bathsheba. In the follow-up murder of Amnon by Absalom, which comes in the verses after this, we're also supposed to see another son of David murdering like David had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. In fact, from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 20, we see a long and drawn-out version of David's sin in chapter 11, detailed blow for blow in his children. It's devastating. After all the hope of the prophet Samuel and his words over David, what has happened to him? Sinful patterns spread and they're passed down. In the end, when David finds out about what Amnon has done to Tamar and all that surrounds it, he's furious. Praise God, good. He should be. It's terrible. But that's all he is. He doesn't go on and act justly. He doesn't stand for the innocent. He's willing just to soak in his anger and take it no further. Perhaps that's because he feels like a hypocrite and guilty. He doesn't act justly on Tamar's behalf. Righteous anger brings righteous action. We see none of that from David. Even after all he put Bathsheba and his children through, the king, the most powerful man in the land, fails to stand up for the oppressed and the innocent to act justly on behalf of his daughter. So, 
How do we not contribute like David has done to toxic cultures? First one is this, give yourself to God. There are all sorts of things that we can do, practical things. But I, I need to be clear with you. If we, if we miss the biggest one, we'll never get there. Worship. We must begin by realizing that people need to turn to God. And that when we start wandering off, there are consequences. They may not be as extreme as this, but there are consequences for you and your family and your friends and your church. When we wander off, it's not just a personal decision. Our worship affects the people around us. The second one is this, be there. David has failed miserably as a father. But praise God, it's not rocket science. Parents, and particularly dads, we just got to be there. Stay faithful to one wife and be part of their lives day in and day out. Amnon's plan, schemed up by his cousin, Jonanadab, was to pretend to be ill. And it would only work because they knew his dad, the king, would come to his bedside and give him anything he wanted. So although David wasn't around, he does come in and spoil. When dad's in town, he brings the sweets. We eat at McDonald's. He buys the toys in the window. Absent fathers have a habit of swooning in and spoiling their children while not doing the hard work of love and discipline day in and day out. Jonadab knew David was no different. And the plan worked. David summons Tamar and Amnon gets his wish of a one-on-one -on -one in his room with the girl of his dreams. Third thing, receive mercy. These patterns of sin handed down from previous generations are powerful, but God is more powerful. His grace goes further. His mercy goes further. The law, which would be regularly read aloud, so that the people of Israel would have been familiar with this, was clear about the consequences of their sin to the next generation, but it's also clear that if you turn to God, you receive forgiveness and you can break the chain of those, that generational sin. Exodus 20 and Numbers 14 show both. I, the Lord, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, turn to me and I will break the chains of sin. Sin, not just that you've committed, but sin that's been committed against you. Don't allow the gospel in your head just to be, God forgives me through Jesus on the cross. That's very important, <laughs> central. But it's also about how God removes the sin and shame that is on you that is not your fault. 
come and receive forgiveness and the removal of your shame and the sin sins against against you. Number four, act. Now, even when we have been guilty, we can act justly as ambassadors of Jesus, of the true King. I wonder what injustices anger you, and yet you go no further than shouting at the TV or moaning over a coffee. I'm guilty of that at times. If you truly do have a just cause and can do something about it, then do it. Don't just work up your emotions. Find a way of doing something about it. Do the right thing. Okay, so that's David. But what about Amnon himself? How do we make sure we don't become anything like Amnon? As David's eldest son, Amnon was to be king. And Israel is hoping he's going to live up to his name. And his name means faithful. Maybe he would even be this son of David that's been promised. But in verses 1 and 2, we see Amnon is completely and utterly obsessed with Tamar. He's besotted with this beautiful sister of Absalom. It says that he loved him, but notice it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her, the text says. It doesn't say he wanted to do things for her. That surely is the distinction between obsession and genuine love. He wants to do things to her. If you love someone, you want to do something for them. You want to serve them. He's obsessed. So much so that it leaves him looking haggard. He cannot think of anything else. Now, God's law is very clear, thankfully. You cannot marry your sister or half-sister, for that matter. Leviticus 18.9, do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. And he knows it. If he was to try and marry her, he can wave goodbye to his kingship. And he doesn't seem to be doing much else other than just obsessing over her, thinking about her night and day. Now, Amnon is coming of age in the wake of a long war with the powerful and dangerous Ammonites. Israel's exhausted. King David is getting older. And so Israel is looking to Amnon very carefully. What's he like? How will he rule? He needed his advisors to help him fulfill his royal duties as a servant of the people, as a son of David. Now, as a son of David, he was supposed to serve the people. That's what he was about. That was his whole role. How do you serve Israel in this role? That's what he was preparing preparing for. If he wanted to be king, he had to be someone who was coming to serve the people. Instead, he's full of self-indulgence. A servant of his own desire. He He is setting a trajectory for his life. Much like, if you've seen The Crown, a young 
British princess in Cape Town, 1947. It was her 21st birthday, and she decided she was going to make a speech about what she wanted her life to be about. This is what she said. Will you, the youth of the British family of nations, let me speak on my birthday as your representative? Now that we are coming to manhood and womanhood, it is surely a great joy to us all to think that we shall be able to take some of the burden off the shoulders of our elders who have fought and worked and suffered to protect our childhood. We must not be daunted by the anxieties and hardships that the war has left behind for every nation of our commonwealth. We know that these things are the price we cheerfully undertook to pay for the high honour of standing alone seven years ago in defence of the liberty of the world. Let us say with Rupert Brooke, now God be thanked who has matched us with this hour. Now, whatever you think of the monarchy, okay, we're in Glasgow here, I need to be a wee bit careful, it would be difficult to contend that Queen Elizabeth hasn't kept her word. That she hasn't taken her responsibilities seriously. That she hasn't set an example to the nation of self-sacrifice and service to the people she has led. It seems her advisors had the desired effect in that speech and as she lived her life. Amnon, on the other hand, had terrible advisors. If it wasn't for Jonadab, Amnon's cousin turned advisor, it may not even have happened, this horrible incident. Verse 3 describes him as shrewd. He's crafty, like the snake in the garden. Jonadab's name means giver, but his plan encouraged Amnon to take what wasn't his, no matter the destruction it would cause. He wants Amnon to take verses 4 and 5. But even though David had to take some responsibility here, and even though Jonadab had to take some responsibility here, it was Amnon who did it. There is, in the end, no blame for him to pass on his own actions. Tamar came to serve him while he was pretending to be ill. And he sends everyone out of the room and he asks Tamar to come over to his bed. And he grabbed her, seized her. Come to bed with me, my sister, he says. When she protested, he refused to listen to her since he was stronger than her. He takes her gentleness and forces her with his strength. He takes their innocent relationship and twists it to try and have his way. He forces himself on her and there's no other way to describe it other than evil. Amnon had become so consumed by his own selfish desires that he had lost any kind of empathy for his victim. Motives for sexual violence are varied, but experts do note one common trait shared by men who have raped. 
they do not believe that they are the problem. In other words, whether the motive is power or lust or anger, they've become so self-obsessed that they completely lose perspective. So how do we not become like Amnon? First thing is get godly advice in your life. For those of you who are in your 20s, let me ask you a question. Who are you listening to? Which YouTube influencers or, or friends are encouraging you to do certain things? How, how is the trajectory of your life being affected by these things? What kind of advice are they giving you? Are they helping you to set out on an adventure of faith that is about self-sacrifice and the service of others? Or is it about pleasing your inner desires? That is a very dangerous road to go down and your culture is preaching it at you all the time. It is a dreadful message. Stop listening to your inner desires. Instead, listen to one who has existed for all time. His name is Jesus and he knows what's best for you way more than you do. Look to godly people. Have them help you. Have them help you to see the traps that are being laid for you, particularly at your age. Have them turn your gaze to Jesus and away from self. If you have a friend who never disagrees with you, they may not be a friend at all. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Who can help you combat the part of your heart that Jeremiah says is deceitful above all things? Number two, be a giver. Self-indulgence without developing the muscle of self-restraint and self-discipline will leave us more likely to hurt people, even in sexual violence. Do you regularly do things you don't want to do or not do things you do want to do? It's died. Sorry. Do you regularly do things that you don't want to do and do things that you don't want to do. Did I just say the same thing twice? I think I did. Confusing myself. Do you pray, go to the gym, read, go to bed early, get up early, eat something healthy when you don't feel like it? Do you turn off Netflix, turn off your phone, say no to more chocolate, guilty, not share that juicy gossip, not click on that link to that porn, not buy that top when it's so cute, or that bottle of whiskey when there's that few pounds off? Do you deny yourself things? We must develop our muscles of restraint and self-control. Self-control is a character requirement for church leadership in the New Testament for a reason. It increases your ability to be able to live for God and to live for others. 
That, of course, we see perfectly lived out in the life of Jesus. He's the better king here, right? There's a theme. There's a better king. There's a better king than Amnon. There's a better king than David. Amnon didn't make it to king. Philippians, Paul says this. Who, Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the Christian life 101. We no longer live for self. If we expect to not be self-indulgent like Amnon, self-protecting like Jonadab, self-interested like Absalom, who we'll see in a moment, self-justifying like David, then we must have our identity and our character shaped by the one who resolutely set out for the cross, Jesus. Absalom, his name is supposed to be father of peace. That's what it means. But instead of bringing the shalom of God, where justice is done and peace reigns, his first reaction when his sister comes to him is to brush it under the carpet. Manage it. Keeps it in the dark. Verse 20, be quiet. For now, my sister, he is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Sure, he's angry, but like David, he doesn't do anything about it. When he finally does do something about it, two years later, he orders his boys to bring about a vigilante type of justice that seems to be just as much about his own ambitions for the throne as it is about his justice about justice for his sister. Sounds kind of Masonic Lodge or Old Boys Network. Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. There is a kind of self-protectionism that takes place that is evil. And it often results in things being brushed under the carpet, hidden away, as if it doesn't matter. We need to be people who bring it into the light. We need to be people who are willing to self-sacrifice, who are willing to sacrifice our careers, willing to sacrifice our reputation with the boys in order to stand up for the oppressed and the innocent. So number one, if you don't want to be like Absalom, don't excuse it. It's easier just to laugh along, isn't it? Laugh at what some guy has done. Laugh at what some guy says in the changing rooms, says in the bar. Don't laugh. Certainly don't encourage things to be swept under the carpet. Second one, speak up. Have you seen that London uh, campaign um, where the guy's with his mates, he's in the shop, 
and they're all chatting away and bantering, having a laugh. And then they get outside and there's a girl there and one of his mates starts doing something terrible. He sort of starts kind of taunting her when she's on her own. And it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And the whole advert is about how this guy knows the right thing to do, to speak up. And you can see him tormented by it. However hard it is, we've got to speak up. Got to speak up. I've left her till the end because I want to make the most of her. All these other people contribute here to a culture that is toxic. But Tamar does the opposite. Tamar is a beautiful example for how we should behave. I hope this is obvious, but the very first thing to say about her is that none of this is her fault. Sadly, perpetrators of sexual violence tend to be able to convince themselves that it really wasn't their fault while the victim assumes that somehow it's theirs. But it's not true. And I want to say to you, if you've been subject to the evils of sexual violence, that it was not your fault. It's not your fault. You need to know it was not your fault. Unlike Amnon, Tamar did live up to her name. It literally means palm tree now. It's not uncommon to name your child after a plant or a tree in this country, but uh, it probably didn't have the same kind of significance that it would have had in Israel. Heather, rose, fern, cauliflower, um, whatever you want to call your children, it probably didn't have the same sort of significance. But in Israel, this name held real meaning, a name that evoked fruitfulness, beauty, righteousness. Solomon's temple would be built a few decades later, decorated with ornate wood carvings of flowers and palm trees, which were, were, to, they were to recall the beauty and the holiness of the Garden of Eden. And you can read about it in 1 Kings 6, time and time again, as they design the inside of the temple, they include cherubim, angels, blossoming flowers, and palm trees. So what's that about? Well, it's because Tamar was a name for someone who was not just beautiful on the outside, but a pure and blameless worshipper on the inside. Temple-like, Eden-like. And that is what she proves to be throughout this whole scene. She had a reputation for being caring. Jonadab and Amnon's plan is built on the assumption that she was known for caring and serving others. And when she came, she baked her famous bread in front of him for her supposedly sick brother. And she does it with diligence and love. Perhaps she knew how obsessed he'd become with her, but she served him anyway. When Amnon tricks her to get close enough to his sickbed, to grab hold of her, she responds, and she responds boldly. Think about this. This is one of the most powerful men in the kingdom. It's likely he will reign and that he will have an immense amount of power in Israel. 
unparalleled power. He wouldn't be elected for a time or kept in check by other people. It'd be like being called into Putin's room in Moscow and saying no. And that's what she did. She turns this evil connection to the relationship back on itself that he had made. No, you, you, no, you are my brother. You know it's wrong. He doesn't listen. She tries again and again. She even is willing to marry him to make it right. Even though she knows that, probably knows that that wasn't um, right either. But she did it because she thought that would be the best thing, the most righteous thing to do when she sees that he is not going to take no for an answer. Then as soon as he rapes her, his anger turns against her and he throws her out. He's done with her. He's done one of the most despicable things that anyone can do. And then he throws her out, bolts the door behind her, shames her. What does Tamar do? Verse 19. She puts ashes on her head and she tears the ornate robe, which symbolized her virginity, her purity. In other words, she brings his sin into the light. She demonstrates extraordinary courage before a very powerful man. In so many ways, she is a picture of what the church should be today. Compassionate, bold, righteous, faithful, fruitful. When Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, he empowered us to push back against evil powers and authorities in this world. He called us to stand for righteousness, and that's exactly what Tamar does here. Praise God. King Jesus has come to ready his bride. He has come to ready his church to take people like Tamar and like you and clothe you in righteousness. And the way that he does this, he takes someone who is maybe, who is like a picture of Tamar, who is running out of the room, shamed, and he's torn clothes, having been defiled by an evil man. Well, we've been defiled by sin and shamed. And Jesus takes us, takes Tamar, takes you, takes any, a victim of any kind of abuse. And he wraps you in his robes of righteousness while he takes on your shame and your pain and your sin. And he goes to the cross in rags, stripped beaten. Do you remember that the Roman soldiers took Jesus' rags and tore them up, divided them up amongst themselves? Well, Jesus allowed all that to happen. Jesus went to the cross. That was his plan. That was God's plan so that you could be robed in righteousness, so that Tamar could be robed in righteousness, so that anyone could have hope. Pastor in the States, 
tells a story of how he had a couple in his, uh, in, his, uh, in his office and he's talking away with them and they've got some marital problems and um, they've got some issues around sex. She can't, feels like she can't have sex with him but he doesn't know why. And it comes out during this counselling session that it's because she'd been abused by her father. He used to come into her bed night after night and abuse her. And as all this came out, the man who's there, the husband, suddenly leaves, gets up, leaves. She's devastated, doesn't know what's going on. Pastor's trying to comfort her. A few minutes later, he comes back. He'd gone out to the first shop he could get to. With a pure white linen sheet. Comes in and he wraps it around her and says, that's how I see you. Because that is what Jesus has done for you. He has removed all that he has done to you. And now you're pure, you're white, you're clean as snow. And so that if that is you, I just want you to know that that is true for you. There are consequences to the sin that was sinned against you. But Jesus has removed it and he's going to take you home in white robes as his glorious bride. I think he's trying to tell me to finish. Three quick things that you can do, like Tamar. Bring sin into the light. Ooh. Boom. Yes. Okay, bring sin into the light. One of the things that we need to do um, with movements like Me Too is celebrate that sin has been brought into the light, out of boardrooms, out of uh, stuffy pubs, out of offices and into the light. Number two, push back darkness. When you see or hear behaviour and language that is degrading towards women particularly, find a way to challenge it or report it to appropriate authorities. Whether that's at work, sports teams, halls, even in the church. Point people to Jesus, number three. Jesus has clothed us in righteousness and now we get to tell others that he has done that for them too. The fruits of the Spirit begin love, truth. The truth sets people free. Jesus has removed the sins not only that we have sinned, but that has been sinned against us. And we must, must make sure that we spread that message. Did I say that begins love truth? Doesn't begin love truth. Love, joy, peace, patience. Um, but love and truth are very important to do it. Listen, we've got a beautiful example in Tamar, but we also have some pretty terrible examples in here. The text is clear. And the Bible storyline is clear. There is great hope even in these horrible moments.